welcome to Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes. Please join Bishop and Kyle as they open today's show by praying the Regina Chaley. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Queen of heaven, rejoice. Alleluia. For he whom you did merit to bear. Alleluia. Has risen as he said. Alleluia. Pray for us to God. Alleluia. Rejoice and be glad, O Virgin Mary. Alleluia. For the Lord has truly risen. Alleluia. Let us pray. O God, who gave joy to the world through the resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, grant, we beseech you, that through the intercession of the Virgin Mary, his mother, we may obtain the joys of everlasting life through the same Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. The Feast of the Ascension is approaching, and on this week's episode, Bishop reflects upon Jesus' ascension into heaven and his glorious return. Then, since the month of May is upon us, it's on to all the different ways we can venerate the perfect disciple, our Blessed Mother from May crownings to Marian feast days. The show wraps up with Bishop answering questions from listeners. If you would like to ask Bishop a question for a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman. We're going to get some questions that you've submitted. If you have questions, you can submit those at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Uh, before we do, we have a couple things to talk about within this month of May. We're kind of in the midst of it now. Uh, before we do, though, Bishop, I was kind of wondering, how can we as a people pray for you? Do you have any prayer requests for your sheep of the of the diocese? Oh, my goodness. That's very kind. You know, I, I know a lot of people, a lot of our faithful do pray for me, and I'm so grateful. That's what gives me the strength and the stamina I need to serve as bishop. And, of course, when... Every time Mass is celebrated in the Eucharistic prayer, there's a prayer for the Pope and the Bishop, and, mm -hmm. and I'm very conscious of the power of that. But I, I'm grateful for any prayers that people offer for me. The Rosary, or even if one of the Hail Marys, when they're saying the Rosary is for yeah. me, that means a lot to me. You know, prayer for that I do the Lord's will, and that... Um, that I serve the people as God is calling me to with fidelity and, and joy. And also, the guidance of the Holy Spirit is one thing I always ask for, I always mm -hmm. pray for, that I uh, open my mind and heart to His gifts of wisdom and uh, understanding and counsel, all the gifts that I need to, uh, to do my ministry well. Well, and we invite you listening to uh, take some time out of your day to, to pray for Bishop and, and all those that work for him as well. You've got a lot of stuff going on in the diocese, and, and we definitely want to keep those intentions in, in our prayers. Uh, also coming up tomorrow, we have a feast day, the Feast of the Ascension of the Lord. Uh, can you explain what the Ascension is, what we celebrate, and how we can remember this and honor it, and maybe why, why it's even important that Jesus ascended? Well, you know, it's one of the principal articles of the faith in the Apostles' Creed. We mm -hmm. say he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. It's a beautiful, glorious mystery that mm -hmm. we can meditate on. Now, 
just to be clear, in this province of the church in Indiana, the Feast of the Ascension is celebrated on Sunday, not on Ascension Thursday. Mm -hmm. So it's been transferred. When I was in Harrisburg, and even till today, they still celebrate Ascension Thursday, which is exactly 40 days after Easter. So it's been left up to each ecclesiastical province to determine when it's celebrated, okay. which can be a little bit problematic. I remember when I was serving at Mount St. Mary's in Maryland, that was the Washington pro or Baltimore, Baltimore province, and they had transferred the feast to Sunday, uh -huh. whereas Pennsylvania was still observing it on Thursday. Uh -huh. So on that that year, Ascension Thursday, I had mass at the seminary like usual, but you know the Ascension was not celebrated. It was going to be celebrated on Sunday, right? But then I celebrate. I was. I had uh, committed to celebrating masses that weekend back home in the Harrisburg Diocese where they had already celebrated the Ascension. <laughs> so I never got to uh, celebrate the Solemnity of the Ascension that year. So, so it is kind of problematic when you have different yeah. uh, provinces celebrating on different days. But I remember after that thinking, oh my goodness, I missed the Ascension. Did you feel slighted? I did because it's a great mystery and yeah. it's a great feast to to uh, so I did miss it you know, but anyhow you I got away from your question that you asked me. <laughs> so in our diocese, just to clarify, our diocese tomorrow is not a holy day of obligation. Right, right. it will be moved yeah. to the Sunday. Right, and we don't celebrate the Ascension tomorrow. There's no the readings and the Mass of the Ascension are not used; they're used on Sunday. Anyhow, we all know the account of the Ascension of of our Lord. We can read it in the Gospels and in actually the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles as well, that Jesus had appeared after the resurrection for 40 days to the Apostles and to Mary Magdalene and, and all kinds of people. And it was after 40 days that he ascended into heaven, so he no longer appeared to people after that. And we believe that Really, it's a fulfillment of what Jesus had said. If you remember, he said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Now, we know that that refers to Jesus on the cross, but also to his ascension into heaven, where he is truly seated at the right hand of the Father, which isn't so much a physical thing as it is uh, signifying that the Son of God is indeed with the Father. He had become incarnate. He, he took on our human flesh, but now his flesh is glorified. And he intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. So I think it's um, helpful to, I mean, there's a lot of things about this mystery that we could meditate on. One thing that uh, I remember Pope Benedict uh, stressing, he, he wrote, by the way, in, in uh, you know, that wonderful three-part Jesus of Nazareth series of books, the three books. In the one that he talks about, Holy Week, I read every year during Lent or during Holy Week. Really? Uh, in the appendix or the epilogue, he gives a really profound reflection on the ascension of our Lord, which is accounted, as I said, at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles. It's also mentioned at the end of Luke's Gospel. And one of the things that... Um, we read in that gospel is, you know, Jesus went out to Bethany, and, and when he was 
he lifted up his hands and, and blessed the apostles, and then he parted from them. He was carried up into heaven. And we read that at that moment they worshiped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And it says that they were continually in the temple blessing God. Well, that's kind of unexpected, isn't it? That they would rejoice that Jesus left, hmm. that he had departed from them. We'd expect them maybe to be sad or confused or something. Yeah. But Pope Benedict says the reason they had such joy is they didn't feel abandoned. They didn't consider Jesus to have disappeared far away into an inaccessible heaven. They're obviously convinced of a new presence of Jesus. And they're certain that he's now present to them in a new way, in a powerful way. So it's a new manner of his presence. He's permanently among the disciples, you know, in the way that only God can be. God is so close to us. So Pope Benedict wants us to be clear that ascension doesn't mean departure into some remote region of mm -hmm. the cosmos. You know, like we might think of it. It's really the continuing closeness that the disciples experienced so strongly that they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And that I found uh, very interesting. And of course, how does Jesus remain with us? It's through the Holy Spirit. He remains with us in the sacraments, especially the Holy Eucharist. And I think the, the other thing connected with the ascension is our Lord commanded before he ascended into heaven that the apostles and disciples bear witness to him, that they go out to all the world to proclaim the gospel, to bear witness to him in their words and in their actions. And then he gave them the power to do that when 10 days later, the Holy Spirit descended upon them. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that being a component of the creed, which eventually says that Jesus is going to return. Right. So he ascends into heaven with this promise that he's going to come back to earth someday. Is there much, I know there's a lot of mystery about the future and what it holds. Is there anything that we know for certain about Jesus' return? Well, our Lord talked about it many times in his ministry, and he made it clear that it's not for us to know when, mm -hmm. the time or the season. He basically says this is known by the Father. I think probably there's there's too much speculation by some on signs and everything. Mm -hmm. um, when we're really to be vigilant at all times, every day, for the Lord's glorious return. But it is clear from the teachings of Christ and the teachings of the church that there will be a final trial before the Lord's second coming, and that this trial will shake the faith of many. Mm -hmm. um, there's words of Jesus' famous eschatological discourse where he talks about the end of the world. He talks about persecution, how people will be deceived. We read in various letters of St. Paul and, and St. John about the Antichrist. It's kind of a pseudo-Messiah. What is the deception of the Antichrist? It's where human beings glorify themselves in place of God. Hmm and in place of, of God who became man, who took on our flesh. So the Antichrist deception we see even now. But we know from the teaching of the church that 
the church will enter into the glory of the kingdom of God through this final Passover. When Jesus comes again, we follow the Lord in his death and resurrection, that there will be a fulfillment of the kingdom where God's victory over the final unleashing of evil, that God will, will triumph over this, and all that happens at the, uh, the second coming and uh, what we also call the last judgment mm-hmm. uh, when, when he comes to judge the living and the dead. All right. Well, we've got a lot more to talk about. This is the month of May, which is often associated with Mary. We'll talk about that a little bit. Also, we've got Mother's Day coming up, maybe a little tie in there as well. Uh, So we'll chat about that, as well as answer questions that you've submitted right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman. We're going to get to some of your questions here in a minute. Uh, Before we do, May is often associated with Mary, the month of Mary. There's a couple different feast days happening. Also, on Sunday, we have Mother's Day, which is May 13th. Also, on May 13th, will be the 101st anniversary of Our Lady's first apparition at Fatima. So, a nice little overlap there. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of all the celebrations last year on the centennial uh-huh. of Our Lady of Fatima, and, and it is neat that it takes that it falls on Mother's Day this year. Yeah, do you do anything special for Mother's Day? A special blessing or anything like that? <laughs> well, I'm in confirmation season, so oh, yeah. I'm on the confirmation circuit, <laughs> and I, I, I'm pretty sure I have confirmations that day. But I try not to forget Mother's Day, right? Uh, and usually do a blessing of the mothers at the masses that I have on Mother's Day. Do you ever do May crownings? Yeah, and, and, uh, and they take place in parishes and schools throughout the diocese. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful custom, showing our veneration of Our Lady, our love for our mother as our queen. And uh, yeah, there are times where I've been in some, of, especially in our Catholic schools, and participated in May crownings. And those can happen any day in the month of May? Or yeah. is there a specific yeah, date? I, I, I don't think so. I think it could happen any time, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? Do you have any idea? As far as its origins, I, I don't really know. I'm, I'm, I, I remember as a kid, as a child, that uh, we celebrated May crownings, and it was uh, you know springtime of the year, Easter season, mm-hmm. um, the flowers, everything. Uh, it's just a beautiful expression of our love for, for our Blessed Mother. But I don't know when it began. Well, we have a couple other feasts happening this month. One of them is a new feast. May 21st is the Feast of Mary, Mother of the Church. So maybe we can talk about this a little bit more in a future show, but uh, what do yeah. you know about this feast day? Well, it's not, uh, it's not a fixed day, May 21st. It's, it's, it's the, the day after Pentecost Sunday, so it'll be a different date every year. Right. I think it was a great idea that Pope Francis has instituted the Feast of Mary, Mother of the Church. If you recall, blessed Pope Paul VI, at the end of the Second Vatican Council, you know, instituted this title of Mary, Mother of the Church, although it wasn't totally new, but it's a beautiful title. And um, to have it the day after Pentecost is, is a good idea because, you know, the Holy Spirit came upon Our Lady at Pentecost, mm-hmm. but it calls us to remember this gift that our Lord gave us. He not only gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit, when he was on the cross, he gave us the gift of his mother as our mother. And she was there with the apostles in prayer in the cenacle in the upper room. 
as uh, they prayed and awaited the descent of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So the day after Pentecost, um, we honor her as the mother of the church, the day after we celebrate the birth of the church. Mm -hmm. And then also on May 31st, we'll celebrate the Feast of the Visitation. So a lot, lot happening in the month of May. Yeah, when you think about it this year, having the Feast of Mary, Mother of the Church, but also Our Lady of Fatima, May 13th and May 31st, the Visitation, all during the month that, that we particularly honor the Blessed Mother. Which I think begs the question, is a Marian devotion a necessary part of the Christian life, uh, maybe specifically for Catholics? Is this something that we have to be working towards or, or having a devotion to Mary? You know, that's a good question. I would say the Lord gave us this gift of his mother mm -hmm. from the cross. I think we are obliged to say yes to the gift. Now, at the beginning of this year, Pope Francis, and I think it was maybe on New Year's Day, if I remember, where he said that devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary isn't just something nice. It's not just something good. He said it's an obligation in the life of a Christian, mm. which I thought was pretty strong. Mm -hmm. um, he spoke of devotion to Mary as a requirement of the Christian life. And again, I go back to the idea of the gift. We think of our own mothers, the gift of our mothers. But then the gift of the Blessed Mother mm -hmm. is a most precious gift for the church. It's interesting, that question you asked, because I'm not sure I remember any other pope saying that devotion to Mary is an obligation, a requirement of the Christian life. Mm -hmm. I mean, definitely, Pope St. John Paul II had this great Marian devotion. It was beautiful. And so did Pope Benedict. And maybe they did say that. I don't remember. But Pope Francis was very strong beginning of this year. Yeah. New Year's Day 2018, when he says that Marian devotion is an obligation in the life of a Christian. Any suggestions for somebody hearing that and saying, "Woo, I better get my act together. <laughs> and, you know, maybe I don't have anything against Mary, nothing... I'm not negative about it, but that really isn't part of my prayer routine. It's not something I think about during Mass or whatever. Well, how that devotion, I mean, is is expressed or lived out, there's a variety of ways. Okay. So, I think, yeah, I, I would say anyone who, who, who doesn't have a relationship with Mary or any devotion to her, that's a problem. Because why would we say no to a gift from Jesus our Lord? Mm -hmm. But the form of that devotion some people may be very devoted to praying the rosary, mm -hmm. which is very highly recommended by the church. Others, it may be not a whole rosary, but maybe occasionally will express their devotion in other ways, praying the Hail Mary or praying the Angelus or just talking to Mary, asking for her prayers. There's all kinds of things. The wearing of the scapular is another form of Marian devotion, the wearing of the miraculous medal. But I think very fundamentally relating to her as our mother who takes us by the hand and leads us to her son and who gives us that great counsel, do whatever he tells you. The words that she said to the waiters at the wedding feast of Cana. Mary's also a model for us of, of every virtue, every Christian virtue, because she's the perfect disciple of the Lord. 
And the other thing is she intercedes for us like a mother, you know, making present our needs to her son. So again, she is the mother of the church. She is our mother who would ignore their mother. Hmm. Can you clarify if somebody's worried about this being some form of worship or why are we so concerned with Mary? Shouldn't we be concerned about our relationship with God and make that the focus and priority? Why is this an obligation? And maybe they're concerned about this, maybe crossing a line. Can you clarify why yeah. a devotion is different than a worship? Or? Yeah, yeah, exa- exactly. Devotion, we're talking about veneration, not adoration. Mary is a creature like all of us. She is our sister as well as our mother. Hmm. So, yeah, we don't put Mary on the level of Jesus. Mm -hmm. We don't put Mary on the level of the Most Holy Trinity because she's a human being. But we venerate her because she's the greatest of all human beings. I mean, all human... She was totally faithful to God's will. She is an example for us of every virtue, beginning with humility, the virtues of faith, hope, and charity, as I said, she's the, the perfect disciple of the Lord. So we venerate her. We do not worship her. And I think that distinction, we have to continually stay because sometimes Catholics are accused of worshiping Mary or putting her on the same level as Jesus, which mm-hmm. would, not be, would not be right. It would be you know, very problematic, even heretical, to do that. So mm-hmm. no, we recognize that Mary is a creature, but she is one who was full of grace. In other words, she was the the one chosen by God for this great mission of being the mother of his son. And she responded to that vocation with deep faith. And that's something for us to be grateful for. And whenever you talk about her interceding for us and that image that you explained of her telling the people to do whatever he tells and and basically... Uh, Jesus obeying her when she she asks him to uh, help out at the wedding of Cana, right, and right? That idea that we can we can bring our needs to Jesus through her, that she can help us, right? In that, right? And you know, Mary always points us to her son. She never points to herself. I mean, she think about well the wedding feast of Cana, as as we just mentioned, but also at the visitation when she uh, was praised by Elizabeth. Blessed is she who believed that the Lord's words to her would be fulfilled. Elizabeth is praising Mary's faith. And Mary's response wasn't praising herself. Mary sang the Magnificat. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. Hmm. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on his lowly one. And so therefore... Mary exalts totally in God. And for us, I mean, she's Our Lady of Humility. Again, she's that example for us of that obedience of faith and that humility. So it is appropriate to venerate her. I like that. Is that an official title, Our Lady of Humility? It was the patron. That title is the patroness of North American College, where I studied in oh, Rome. Oh, okay. Yeah. And matter of fact, the street where Casa Santa Maria, which is the graduate house where I lived for three years, is called Humility Street, hmm. Via del Humilta, because of the North American College has the chapel, Our Lady of Humility, and this beautiful image painting of Our Lady of Humility. 
Huh. Uh, so yeah, that's that goes back uh, centuries. I like that. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. If you have questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, Bishop will answer questions about eating seafood on days of absence, the relationship between our diocese and the military, and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. If you're enjoying Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, be sure to check out Redeemer Radio's other locally produced programs, including The Kyle Hyman Show, Dr. Doctor, and Church Life Today. To listen to previous episodes of any of these, go to RedeemerRadio.com and select Audio Library, or download the free Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet and listen there. You can also submit questions for Bishop Rhodes to answer on a future episode of Truth and Charity on the app or website. Or if you have a question for Dr. Doctor, a show featuring three physicians from the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese, you can submit it there too. So don't forget the Redeemer Radio app and website for past episodes of all our locally produced shows. Thanks for listening to and supporting Redeemer Radio as we continue our mission of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman. Our first question that was submitted is, what parts of the Catholic Mass's rubrics would make it invalid if they were admitted by a priest on a daily basis? And are these particular rubrics optional? First one they mentioned, entrance antiphon is in the absence of an entrance song, or two is the penitential act replaced by a simple Lord have mercy three times without anything else. Third one in question is the communion antiphon, who is responsible for the antiphons? I am neither a theologian nor a liturgist, so I need your help. Thanks in advance for clarifying this for me. May God continue to bless the wonderful work you do for our diocese and the community at large. Thank you very much. Those rubrics that the caller mentioned are not necessary for validity. If okay. one is worried about validity of the Mass, the only thing that would invalidate a Mass is if the uh, consecration was not done properly in other words to have a valid eucharist the priest needs to pray the the words of consecration correctly and the bread and wine are then transformed into the body and blood of christ so really i think what the caller is talking about has to do more with liceity licitness Mm -hmm. whether if a priest omits things or changes things illegitimately okay illicitly but we have to be careful it doesn't invalidate if one does something illicit now one shouldn't do anything illicit one should be following the rubrics but if a priest does something illicit we shouldn't be worrying oh this makes the whole mass invalid no no the only thing that would invalidate would be like i said um not doing the consecration properly okay now some of the specific things omitting the entrance antiphon or the communion antiphon when there's no singing that's a good question but i I always if if there's no entrance song or no communion hymn we are supposed to do recite the entrance antiphon or the communion antiphon or you can chant it 
The penitential act, you, sh- you have different options that the priest can use. One of those options isn't just to say, Lord, have mercy three times. That's not one of the options. Okay. So really, a priest has to follow the, the book, the missal. But, you know, you really are not allowed as a priest to make up your own things or, or um, substitute something for what the church is prescribing in, in, the, in the ritual. And if one does that, then it's, that's illicit, you know. Um, it's not legitimate to do mm-hmm. that, basically. Now, one has to be careful. I mean, a, a priest might forget something, you know, or something like that. I mean, it's, he's not always culpable. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the priests, our priests are taught are, are in the seminary the importance of following the ritual correctly and to celebrate not only valid sacraments, but also licit mm-hmm. sacraments. So, in other words, following the liturgical law, following the liturgical laws. So, it would be, for example... If you're at a mass and a priest decides, well, I'm not going to read the gospel. I'm just going to have a layperson come up and read the gospel. I mean, that's illicit. Uh-huh. You know, only a priest or deacon can read the gospel. Or a priest who decides, well, you know, I, I think um, I'm just going to skip the Lamb of God. You can't do that. Okay. I mean, you know, so it's illicit to do those kinds of things. But Eucharist still has changed from... Right. The bread it's still to the valid. body of Christ. It's valid. Anything that a parishioner should do if they suspect something that is being done illicitly, should they take any action or? You know, they could, you know, they could uh, mention it in a kind way, charitable way to the priest after mass in an appropriate way. The whole issue of liturgical abuses. There was a time when there were probably there was more confusion with the liturgical changes and there might, there were some abuses, mm-hmm. uh, but I think most of that's been corrected. Okay. The priests I know are faithful to the, uh, the church's prescriptions, the, ch- the church's liturgical norms. All right. Also, someone asked, why is it okay to eat seafood on abstinence days? In the United States, and probably most countries, the law of abstinence refers to uh, abstaining from meat. Mm-hmm. We haven't said that one must abstain from seafood, although... When I was in Ethiopia in March, the Ethiopian Christians, the Catholics as well as the Orthodox, their Lenten abstinence was also from seafood. Okay. So, so it's interesting. Uh, so it really depends on the legislation in one per, one's particular area. Mm-hmm. But in the United States, uh, we haven't extended that obligation of abstinence to seafood. Why, I don't know. Okay. I guess give people more options. But I think the, the issue is that we do a communal penance, mm-hmm. that we, all, all together we, we abstain from meat. One can certainly voluntarily also extend that if they want. A person could say, well, I'm not going to eat seafood either because if I eat seafood on a Friday in Lent, for example, I don't feel like I'm making a sacrifice. Well, then I'd say to that person, don't eat seafood. Yeah. You know, give that up too. Uh You know, but the law itself doesn't require it. Okay. Yeah. Another question submitted is, what is the relationship between our diocese and the archdiocese of the military? Is it a difficult decision to let one of our priests become a military priest? The archdiocese for the military services is, uh, and Archbishop Brolio is the archbishop, serves all our military men and women throughout the world. Mm -hmm. And they have priests serving as chaplains. And there is a great shortage of priest chaplains in the military. All the other dioceses 
including our own, we're encouraged to support the military archdiocese. As a matter of fact, we now take up a collection for the military archdiocese every three years to help them financially. Okay. So it's important because these men and women who serve in the armed forces, they come from our dioceses and they need pastoral and spiritual care. So mm -hmm. we should support the military archdiocese. I am always open to a priest who, or a seminarian who feels called to serve in the military. I'll usually say yes because I know there is a great need, even though that is a sacrifice for us because we need priests right here. But I, I don't want to neglect our military men and women mm -hmm. who need that the sacraments and, mm -hmm. and pastoral care. So when somebody from our diocese, a priest or a seminarian, would discern that call and you would allow that is that a permanent thing that they would transfer to that diocese or is it would it be a temporary thing where they would just go there for a set number of years and then they would return to our diocese it's temporary they don't become incarnated in the military archdiocese i don't think the military archdiocese has incarnated priests they don't have priests that belong to them oh, okay uh so basically it's a priest like myself releasing one of our priests for a period of time and uh, the obligation is usually a minimum, I believe, of five years. But I could also allow a priest, if he so desired and requested, to, to remain longer, mm -hmm. maybe the 20 years or whatever it is until retirement, and then he could come back and serve in our diocese. So that's, that happens as well. All right. Well, if you have questions, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we have more of your questions, including a few questions about weddings and more coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman asking questions that you've submitted. One of the listeners submitted the following question. What is an example of a sin of pride? Pride is one of the seven capital sins. And we sometimes speak of these as vices, capital vices. Mm -hmm. So as a matter of fact, Thomas Aquinas used the term vice because a capital sin it's a vice which engenders other sins. That's why they're called capital. Capital comes from the Latin caput, which means head. Hmm. So, so when one has these vices, like the, the sin of pride or envy or lust or you know any of those capital sins, they engender other sins. They lead to other actual sins. So, which really leads to the spiritual corruption of the person. Mm -hmm. That's why we need to really, you know, fight these, these uh, capital sins. What is pride? Pride is an inordinate desire for one's own excellence. Hmm. One is so filled with himself or herself that one is so self-centered. This uh, one really is putting himself or herself in the place of God. It's an inordinate desire for one's own excellence. We think of vanity, which is a little bit different. Pride is, is something much deeper. It's an attitude. It's a disposition of one's heart that's really, really dangerous. And of course, we see that from the very beginning, the original sin. It was pride 
that led Adam and Eve to become want to become like God, you know, mm. and they committed that that first act of disobedience to God. So the caller asked about examples of sins of pride. Well, there's a multitude of examples that one could give. Again, if one even has thinks of oneself as somehow superior to others, one, you know, we speak of being on an ego trip, you mm-hmm. know, that is a sin of thought. I mean, that's, that's a sinful attitude. But then there are sinful actions, actions of pride that are sinful. So, you know, sometimes someone might confess in the confessional that they committed the sin of pride or that they are filled with this capital sin of pride. And that's very important to examine our consciences about that. But it can be manifest in actual sins where one, for example, puts other people down mm-hmm. or you know, engages in gossip. Sometimes that can be at times the sin of pride, or one insists on their own will all the time, or one even in their relationship with God, like out of pride, doesn't feel that they need to go to Mass, that they don't need God in their life. They don't need the Eucharist. Isn't that pride? Hmm. You know, like, I don't need... Like, I'm not dependent on God. I don't need his grace. I don't need the grace of the sacraments. That's that's the sin of pride, you know. I don't need to go to confession. Right. That's the sin of pride. So hopefully, these are some examples that I think hope will be helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. I never noticed this wording before, but someone asked, what are wedding bands? What is their purpose in our church bulletin? This isn't band does like a, a wedding band that you would wear on your finger right uh, and it's not saying that they are banned from being married right it? so what is a wedding ban well ban in this context is spelled b-a-n-n uh-huh so it's double n and this was a much more common practice uh years ago because under the old code of canon law from 1917 this was a strict requirement everywhere. Hmm. Where, and what it meant was the priest in a parish had to publish for three consecutive Sundays, three consecutive weeks, the names of the couple that intended to get married. Okay. And the reason for that was that anyone, if anyone knew that there's some reason they shouldn't be married, let's say there was an impediment, that they were expected to come forward mm-hmm. and let the priest know. For example, someone isn't old enough to marry, or someone is a hidden, isn't really a Christian, and they said they were, or whatever uh, it might be. If they were uh, already married, or if they were a prior bond, exactly. Uh-huh. But remember, in in old days, people didn't move around that much, and you uh-huh. know, people knew everybody, so it kind of made sense. Nowadays, you know, there's a lot more mobility. But we still have to be attentive, the priest who's preparing a couple for marriage, that they are free to marry. But we find other ways besides bans that are more effective today. Mm -hmm. For example, we require affidavits from two witnesses for each one, usually the parents, testifying, for example, that person was never married before. Mm -hmm. So some places they still do publish bans in the parish bulletins, but the prenuptial investigation that's required by the church, usually now other means are more effective, like I said. Uh The actual witnesses that answer questions 
on a form that we have regarding the person's freedom to marry. That's interesting. I imagine I, when I see these, I always just think it's an announcement, like, hey, pray for these people because they're going to get married. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting to know the history behind it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one more question that we had was, does the Catholic Church recognize a marriage when the ceremony is held outdoors? Well, we do not allow outdoor weddings. You know, weddings are to take place within a sacred building, mm-hmm. within a church or a chapel. And therefore, to have a Catholic wedding there would not be permitted. Now, there are situations where perhaps, and I think especially of a, an interreligious wedding, for example, where a Catholic, let's say, is marrying a non-Christian. Mm-hmm. When that happens, it's not a sacramental marriage. A sacramental marriage is only between two baptized people. So let's say you have a Catholic marrying a, a non-baptized person. Okay. They need a dispensation from what we call the impediment of the disparity of cult. Disparity of cult. And if that dispensation is granted, usually the Catholic party has to profess that they're going to continue to live their Catholic faith and do everything in their power to have the children baptized and raised as Catholics. If they receive that dispensation, they can marry that non-Christian. Again, it's not a sacramental marriage, but it's a valid marriage. Hmm. And let's say after that, that marriage is celebrated, let's say, by the rabbi or, or by the priest or both of them together, and let's say it was outside. Mm-hmm. Um, that would still be a valid marriage. Um, but typically, we would not allow it. Certainly, we wouldn't allow it between two Catholics or even between a Catholic and uh, uh, another Christian. But once they have a dispensation, they can, like that unusual situation that I just mentioned, it might take place outside. An outdoor wedding doesn't affect validity. Be clear on that. What's What's necessary is that they be married before a priest and two witnesses. Okay. Uh, or if they're dispensed from canonical form and get married, let's say, by a rabbi outside, we'd still recognize that as valid. Okay. I'm sorry this is getting a little complicated. No, yeah. And how does one get a dis- dispensation? Well, usually one would talk to the priest, and if there's a dispensation, the priest would, would write to the bishop's office. Okay. And a dispensation isn't just given automatically. There would have to be good reasons, just reasons mm-hmm. for a dispensation from a, a law of the church. And a priest could get permission to celebrate a mass outdoors for in certain situations. I've kind of seen it or like a retreat or something like that. Right. Uh, they could get permission from the bishop for that, but you couldn't get a permission for two Catholics to get married outside of the church. No. Okay. No. All right. Well, thank you so much for that answer. You're welcome. Uh, Could we get a special blessing maybe for mothers before we go and oh, your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Book of Blessings, which the church has, um, has a special blessing for mothers on Mother's Day. Okay. So I thought that maybe I would just um, give that blessing, which you may hear again at the end of Masses on Mother's Day, because I think a lot of priests use this uh, this prayer of blessing on Mother's Day. So, loving God, as a mother gives life and nourishment to her children, so you watch over your church. Bless 
all mothers that they may be strengthened in their vocation as Christian mothers. Let the example of their faith and love shine forth. Grant that we, their sons and daughters, may honor them always with a spirit of profound respect. Grant this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Join us next Wednesday at noon for another new episode of Truth in Charity. Bishop Rhodes will talk about the upcoming ordination to the diaconate, Pentecost Sunday, and speaking in tongues. And finally, he'll answer questions submitted by listeners. To submit yours, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or download the free Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet and select Ask Your Questions. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.